Good morning. It's a little loud, isn't it? Good morning. We all need a goat. Blake says amen. I've got some I'll say you. We all need a goat, but not just any kind of goat, a particular type of goat, a scapegoat, if you will. If you look in your Bibles at Leviticus chapter 16, starting at verse 5, here's what you read. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So Aaron was to take the first goat into the tabernacle. He was to sacrifice it on the bronze altar as a sin offering for the people. But the other goat was to remain alive. And notice what is written in verses 20 through 22. It says, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the and the altar he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. After sacrificing the goat on the bronze altar, Aaron was to return to the courtyard, lay his hands on the live goat. This was symbolic of the evil and rebellion of the Israelites being placed upon its goat. And after that was done so, the goat was to be set free, to run into the wilderness, never to be seen again. You know, I've got a dilemma, and here's my dilemma. I know that I have been forgiven of my sins. I know that Jesus, his blood, that atoning sacrifice, washes me clean. I know that. I know that Jesus is my scapegoat, so to speak. But I have problems living like it. And I don't think I'm the only one here that can say that. I think many of you in this room, if not virtually all of you, have an issue with guilt coming up over and over again in your life. Maybe, maybe it has caused you to live with persistent nagging to where you can't ever get over the past and move forward. Maybe you try your sin over and over again in your mind and your one-person jury always finds you guilty and you can just never move forward. There are people who are not Christians who refuse to come to Christ, who refuse to seek salvation because they believe that God could never forgive them for what they've done. And then there are those folks who are Christians, who have had their, who have had their confidence eroded over time and feel like that God has just given up on them. 
Nothing could be further from the truth, of course, but it's difficult when we deal with guilt. I don't think I'm out of line at all by suggesting that we need a bit of an orientation on guilt. We don't need any education on the feeling. We all know about the feeling, right? But I do think it would do us some good to understand the distinctiveness between a guilt that afflicts and a guilt that acts. You know, I probably could have taken the lesson this morning and just preached exactly the same lesson that I preached last week, just changed the title from shame to guilt, and you probably wouldn't have known any difference. Because we see shame and guilt as basically the same thing. In fact, when you looked at the lineup of topics for our one-word series and you saw that shame was one week and guilt was the next, you probably thought to yourself, well, why is he doing shame and guilt? Aren't those the same thing? Why can't you just combine those? Because they're not exactly the same thing. They're very similar, but they're not exactly the same. Guilt and shame are twins that were born in the Garden of Eden. They were born out of rebellion. Conceived, I should say, out of rebellion. And make no mistake, it's easy to tell who their parents are. Because they have you know, their, their mother's hair and their, and their father's eyes. And they look like their parents. But they're fraternal, they're not identical twins. While the difference is subtle, it is there. And it's important that we understand that difference. Here's how we tell them apart. Guilt is a verdict. It's an awareness of failure against a standard. Shame is a feeling, it's a sense of exposed failure against someone else. So when you violate God's law, you feel guilty. And let me tell you, folks, you should. If you violate God's law, you should feel guilty because you stand condemned. But that's what guilt is. You violated God's law. But often when we feel guilt, we also feel shame. Not always, like we talked about last week. There are people in our world that stand condemned that don't care. It doesn't bother them at all, and they feel no shame. But by and large, most people who are guilty also feel the shame that comes along with the guilt. We could describe it this way. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. When you touch your hand to a hot stove, it's going to burn and it's going to hurt, right? However, when we talk about the burn, we're talking about what causes the pain, not the pain itself, if that makes any sense. The burn is the raw skin. The burn is the blister. The burn is the wound, but pain is the byproduct. Think of guilt as the wound, and guilt causes the pain, which would be what we describe as pain, as, as, as shame, right? What we deal with going forward in life. The distinction is sometimes subtle. It's sometimes hard to decipher, but it's there. Here's something else. Guilt is lonely and shame is not. You are the only one who is guilty. Guilt is personal. When you've done something wrong, that's totally on you. Now, people try to blame other people or other things, but that's all on you. If you have made a choice to sin, the guilt is all on you. But shame can be experienced by other people around you, even if it's your sin, right? I mean, you think about it. An alcoholic father. The children have to deal with that as well, right? If one of the spouses in a marriage is unfaithful, many times that causes collateral damage. And so guilt is isolated. 
But shame is contagious. It usually affects more than just the person who is guilty. And so these twins are very, very similar, but, but there are distinctive marks, marks that set them apart. And we can go back to their birth. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, tree, uh, fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Guilt is the event. Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, and they were guilty. They did expressly what God told them not to do. What happened after that event was that their eyes were opened, and like we talked about last week, for the first time they realized that they needed to cover themselves. They felt shame as well. They felt embarrassment. Guilt spoke to them and said, you are wrong. And shame in that moment spoke to them as well. And shame said, you've got to do something. You've got to run and hide from God. This is an embarrassment. You have failed to live up to the expectation of God. But here's another distinction that must be made between the two. And it's crucial that we understand this distinction if we ever want to have any hope of dealing with shame and guilt. And here it is. Guilt is more logical but shame is very irrational. Guilt can be looked at and defined objectively, right? You can look at guilt and you can ask the questions, who, what, when, where, how, all those things, and you can answer those questions, but shame, it's a little harder to decipher. Shame can be muddy and convoluted and opaque, right? If we're going to live outside of Eden, we're going to have to learn how to deal with shame and guilt. I put it this way, we're going to have to learn how to discipline these twins, or else they're constantly going to beat us down. You know as well as I do that guilt and shame have the potential to destroy us and to keep us from living up to our potential. They can stunt our growth spiritually. Guilt is a given if we, if we fail to live up to the standard. At least it should be. If we fail to meet God's standard, if we sin, we should feel guilt. However, that guilt should motivate us to do something about it, right? Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? We talked about this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance that leads to regret, or without regret, I should say, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Where there is no guilt, there's no grace. Paul wrote, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Until we seek forgiveness, we are guilty as charged. So, the feeling of guilt is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing. If you have done wrong in the sight of God, you should feel guilty. But that guilt should motivate you to do something about your guilt. You sin, you go to God, you seek forgiveness, and you handle it swiftly and decisively. 
saw a church not long ago that had a billboard that said, guilt-free, graceful. There's a problem with that. Do you want to be a church or do you want to be a part of a church that's guilt-free? That smooths over guilt? That treats it like it's not a thing? Because if you have violated God's standard, you should feel guilty. If you don't feel guilty, there's a problem. And guilt is a necessary prerequisite to salvation. No guilt, no salvation. You remain condemned before a holy God. To deny guilt is to deny salvation. However, as we're all aware of, guilt and shame can haunt us long after we have sought forgiveness, even long after we have been forgiven by God, right? There's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Paul Brand that talks about a phenomenon in the medical field known as phantom limb pain. And what this is is that a person has a limb amputated for whatever reason, and yet they still feel the pain. The limb is no longer there, but they still have the pain because mentally they can't get past that hurdle. He uses the example of a gentleman who um, had his leg removed because of diabetes or something like that. He had his leg removed from below the knee, and he could still feel his toes curl. It's a sensation that's still there even though the limb is gone. And Dr. Paul Brand talks about a situation in which there was a gentleman who had very poor circulation. They recommended that he have his leg amputated, and he thought about it. And after some time, the pain got so severe that he decided to go ahead with the procedure. By the time he had the procedure, he had grown to despise his leg. He hated that leg because it caused him so much pain. In fact, he told the doctors, preserve it. I want to put it on my mantle so I can taunt it and mock it for all the pain that it's caused me, right? Well, they removed the leg, and the gentleman still experienced pain because it, it had lodged in his brain. There was a block there mentally, and he couldn't get past the pain. There was no leg there, but he still felt pain, phantom leg pain, right? And I think that's a good description sometimes about how shame and guilt continues to haunt us long after we have amputated the sin, long after we have removed the sin from our lives, we still have this pain that exists and it's hard to get over. You know there were another set of twins that were born out of necessity, right? They were conceived at Calvary. And their names are Justification and Sanctification. Very important twins when we talk about combating shame and guilt. Justification deals with our guilt. Justification comes about when we obey the gospel. We are justified by a holy God. A holy God turns his wrath away from us. We stand before God, washed in the blood of Christ, and he looks at us and he says, not guilty. Sanctification is a process, and the process of sanctification begins with justification. Sanctification is being set apart now as a Christian, as a child of God. It's the continual cleansing that comes about as we seek to live faithfully. It's living out your baptism. It's continually responding to the gospel. 
It's the demonstration of our faith throughout the rest of our lives as we seek to live holy. And it's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, when he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, he says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Paul tells these people, he says, you were guilty. You absolutely were guilty. When you were living in these sins, you stood condemned before a holy God. But now you are justified. You are sanctified. Go live like it. And that's a message for us as well. Absolutely, that's a message we need to hear. If you are a child of God, you've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You're no longer guilty. Now you stand before a holy God, and he looks at you, and he says, you're not guilty. How can that be so? Because you've been washed in the blood of Christ. You have that scapegoat, right? But my guess is you know all that. My guess is if you're a child of God, I'm not telling you anything new. But the fact remains that even though you are a child of God, you probably still deal with guilt and shame on a regular basis. Sanctification is hard. It can be messy. It's a messy process. How do you deal with the lingering effects of shame and guilt even though God has declared you not guilty? Let me tell you about Sarah. Sarah was very rich. I mean, very rich. She made $1,000 a day. She inherited $20 million, which even back in the 1800s when she lived was a lot of money. But she dealt with a lot of misery as well. Sarah was a woman, because of her money, she had a lot of influence. Politicians, lenders were constantly coming to her. She was invited to all the big events. People wanted a piece of Sarah's empire. Sarah seemed to have it all on the outside, but she was miserable. So she moved from Connecticut to California. She bought an eight-bedroom farmhouse on 160 acres. And that's where things got weird. Sarah began by hiring 16 carpenters to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 38 years, building onto her farmhouse. When it was completed, the structure was odd to say the least. Each window had 13 panes, each wall had 13 panels, each closet had 13 hooks, each chandelier had 13 globes. The floor plan was equally bizarre. There were corridors put in randomly, some led nowhere. There was a set of stairs that went up to the ceiling and just stopped. There were doors that opened up to blank walls. There were tunnels, there were trap doors, there were secret passageways. Work on the mansion finally concluded, but once it was done... It covered six acres and contained six kitchens, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and one bell tower. What would cause a woman to do something so bizarre, to act so eccentric and so compulsively? Well, what's interesting about her story is that she lived alone, or 
Or did she? That was, the, that was the debate back in this day and time. Because every night she would have a servant ring a bell, and she would go to what she called the blue room and entertain her guests. Then at 2 a.m., the bell would ring again, and her guests would leave. Who were her guests? They were U.S. soldiers killed on America's frontier. They were Indians torn apart by the bullets that struck them. Both the soldiers and the Indians were killed by a new invention known as the repeating Winchester rifle. And it brought Sarah Winchester and her family a whole lot of money. But it also caused her a lot of shame and guilt. And the only way she could cope with it was to invite the dead to come and share a really bizarre house with her. Now that's a very odd story. But I think it shows how guilt and shame can haunt us long after we have been forgiven. So how do we discipline the twins? How do we move past the guilt and the shame? Well, we have to cope with our shame by remembering how God dealt with our guilt. With that in mind, let me remind you of a few things. First of all, you are not your sin. You've got to remember that. You are not your sin. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul also reminds us in the letter to the Romans that the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You're not identified by your sin. That was the old you. The old you's been put to death. It's been buried. Don't go digging it up again because that's not you. You've been redefined. You've been reborn and redefined. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus? Remember those three times that he tempted him? He starts out by saying, if you are the Son of God. Think of the devil saying that to Jesus in a very mocking tone. Well, you know, if you are the Son of God, why don't you do this? If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. He takes him up on a on a high place, and he shows him all the kingdoms, and he says, I can give all this to you. There's only one catch. You've got to fall down and worship me. The devil is offering him a, a dazzling shortcut, but it's got to be on his terms. Satan is trying to redefine who Jesus is. And, of course, you know, he tries one last time. That you know, He says, uh, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. You won't die prematurely. Everyone will immediately accept you as the Messiah. But again, he looks at Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God. Think about the implications there. Satan is trying to redefine Jesus. He's trying to give him a different identity. If you are the Son of God, if you think you're the Son of God, then why don't you do this? And I think Satan does the same thing to us. He's constantly trying to redefine who we are. You see, the devil's questioning of Jesus was at the heart of, a question of identity. He does the same with you and me when we're in the desert, when we feel spiritually depleted and emotionally parched. He whispers in your ear and he says, are you really a child of God? Do you really think that God is going to forgive you for everything that you've done? Do you really think that God is going to look past your past? Do you really think that God is going to continue to forgive you after all the bad things that you've done? 
How do we combat that? We combat it by not being a victim of identity theft and remembering that there is another voice. And we've got to allow that voice to be the loudest in our ear. Every time the devil whispers in our ear, you're not good enough, we hear the voice of God even louder. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let the gospel do the talking. Don't give the devil an ear. Shut him off. Let the voice of God be the loudest in your life. When you obey the gospel, you receive a new identity. You're not just reborn, you're redefined. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were a people, but now you are the people of God. You were not a people, I should say, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the reborn identity. This is you now. You're not what you once were. You're different. Act like it. And remember, there's a greater voice. One that speaks truth, not lies. And finally, remember that we are our brother's keeper. You know, throughout the Bible, we find that God had a people, didn't he? It started with Adam and Eve. Then it was, it was Noah and his family. Then it was Abraham. Then it was the Israelites. And it's us now, the church. We are his people. Throughout the Bible, we see that God had a people, and he protected them. He sustained them. He provided for them. We are that people now. We are the new Israel, if you will. We are the chosen people of God. In fact, you look at the New Testament and you see really the whole Bible and you see how it is setting up for Gentiles like you and us to be grafted into the kingdom. The kingdom is no longer reserved for one group of people. It's reserved for you and I as well. Now we have an opportunity. That one group of people now is New Testament Christians. We have the opportunity to have access to the kingdom of God. We have been grafted in. And Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? And God answers that question with what? With the church. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, look at the church. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Stimulate one another to love and good need, deeds. You know all those, those one another passages. Because not only were we baptized into Christ, we were given a family as well. Not only were we granted access into the kingdom, we were put in a family. And we live in the wild. On this earth, we live outside of Eden. And it's tough. Though we have been forgiven, though we can live guilt-free, knowing that the guilt and shame has been taken away because we have been justified and we are being sanctified, though we know that, there are times when we feel defeated. There are times when we're beaten down. There are times when we struggle. God knew that. God knew that that was going to be a very real possibility, a very real thing. And so he gave us the church as well. He gave us a new identity, but he also gave us the church. Because he knows that we need, we need eyes to cry with. We need, we need arms to embrace us. 
We need ears to listen to us. We need voices to tell us that it's going to be okay. Hope is on the horizon. This life is going somewhere, and it will not end in tragedy. It will end in glory as we get to spend eternity with our Heavenly Father. But until we get there, it can sure seem like death is winning. It can sure seem like the devil is ahead. He's already been defeated. He has no shot. It's not even a fair fight. But how do we get through it? What do we do now till we get to eternity? We love on one another. We embrace one another. We help one another to get there, right? We need people around us that are reading from the same script, that are thinking the way that we are, that are reading from the same Bible, that share the same spiritual DNA, and that are there ready to help us. And when it looks like guilt and shame are about to conquer us, they step in and they beat it away with a stick and they say, uh-uh, it's not happening. We need each other, right? I need you. I need you. And I think you need me as well. Here's the deal. And I don't, I don't need you to talk me off a ledge after I get done here. I know, you know, when I say, when I say things like this, sometimes people want to come up and say, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't need advice. I, I'm just telling you I'm being honest here. I preach the message this morning feeling like a hypocrite. Because I have preached lessons like this over and over again in 17 years as a minister. I've talked to my kids about this. I have told prostitutes, prisoners, adulterers, fornicators, all those people that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I've talked to crowds filled with alcoholics, murderers even, and told them there is no amount of sin greater than the grace of God. And I believe that. I do. But it's hard for me to live like it sometimes. I almost feel a little hypocritical because I preach this stuff, but I don't always live it. I'm working on that. Again, I don't need you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I know what I'm doing wrong. I can figure it out. It's just hard, isn't it? To do what we know is really hard. To know what to do is not the hard part. To do what we know is the hard part. But here's the message that I keep telling myself and the message that you need to keep telling yourself as well. Here it is. Stop looking for the goat. It's gone. Let it go. Quit looking for it. Luke's going to lead us in a song. Maybe you're shackled with guilt this morning and shame. Maybe you, maybe you need support. This is the best social network you will ever be a part of, I promise you. Let us help you. Maybe you're ready to get rid of the guilt. You stand condemned and you know it, and you're ready to begin a new life in Christ. Let's take care of that this morning. As we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. You have a scapegoat. Let it go. Come now as we stand and as we sing.